all you movie junkies and cinephiles, it's time for the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. Welcome, one and all, to episode 335 of the SLS Cast. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, this is the Gibson episode of the SLS Cast because it turns out that the world's first commercial thin line arc top semi acoustic electric guitar was the Gibson ES335. Notable users include Chuck Berry, Larry Carlton, Eric Clapton, BB King, and Alex Lifeson. And with that wonderful little bit of Gibson knowledge, I, of course, am Matt. And coming to us all the way from sunny California would be our resident Sony employee, Tim. I really enjoyed the Alex Lifeson of Rush mention on the show. I never thought that would have been a, been a thing. So thank you. I am nothing if not here for you, Tim. That's romantic. In any way that I can be. I think, I think we need our own <laughs> MGM movie musical made about us. You know, if we had a pot, well, we would not have had a podcast in the 1930s, but if we had a radio show in the 1930s, who knows? Maybe, maybe Jimmy Stewart would have played. We would definitely be pre-code. We would be a pre-code radio show from the 30s. That is for sure. Uh, Hey, Matt, did you see that son of a bitch Clark Gable tried to sing in that one movie? Ah, what an asshole. Yeah, putting on the Ritz, more like putting on the shits, you know what I mean? Yeah, how about that Jimmy Stewart? Ah, I can sing. No, you can't, Jimmy. Piss off. Well, that's all right. This time we get to talk about the likes of people like um, uh, Roddy McDowell, the Marx Brothers, Doris Day. We get to talk about all these wonderful people this time. And interestingly enough, I know that this is coming out so late but doris day is still with us 97 years old knock on wood yeah knock on wood right you know knocking on the head right here um if you would like to back on the 3rd of april for her actual 97th birthday the hollywood reporter did an interview with her and so you can actually read a nice little interview uh hollywoodreporter.com by way of Lori Brookins. Uh the the article is called Doris Day and rare interview talks turning 97 her animal foundation and Rock Hudson quote I miss him end quote. So beautiful little read should only take you a couple of minutes but since we're talking about the old stars, the golden age stars, we're doing That's Entertainment Part 2 this time around. And Doris Day is featured in this one. I thought it would be just kind of a fun little nugget to share. A little Easter egg, little bonus there for you. It happened in 1974. The biggest thing in movies since movies began. It brought people together for sheer entertainment. But now, hang on to your hats. Here come Fred Astaire and Gene Kelly to bring you the greatest entertainment since That's Entertainment. That's Entertainment Part 2. The show must go on as the show business cry. But there's always someone who wants to know why. With Robert Taylor, we'll try to come up with an answer. It's Eleanor Powell, the dancer. No Everything about it is appealing. Everything the traffic will allow. I'll build the stairway to paradise with the new step every day. I'm going to get there. 
flies Stand aside, I'm on my way Judy Garland, Leslie Caron, Greta Garbo, Doris Day, Bob Taylor, Jack Buchanan, Tony Martin, Maurice Chevalier, Big Crosby, Mickey Rooney, Elder Paul, Annette Fabre. That's entertainment. Okay, we, we clearly had all sorts of wonderful things to say about that's entertainment. And now we know that that's entertainment was super successful. And because of its success, they decided to not sit idly by and let anything go. They, they turned right around and started production on it. Now, you mentioned last week, Tim, that, uh, Gene Kelly directed That's Entertainment Part Two. And in point of fact, all of the live action scenes that they have for the film, and by live action, I guess the 1976 live action, I guess the kind of the intros style that they were doing, are in fact directed by Gene Kelly. And it was his last directorial outing ever in his life. Um, the rest of the stuff was put together by Nelson Riddle. Uh, I'm sorry, not Nelson Riddle. David um, Brether- Bretherton, who was the editor. He was the one, he and his team were the one putting all those features back together. Um, something that was pretty cool that I found out about this one, Tim, I'm sure you probably can expand on this. So uh, Gene Kelly and Fred Astaire were amongst the presenters in the previous film, uh, you know, the previous film had Liza Minnelli, uh, it had Elizabeth Taylor, it, it had Jimmy Stewart, as you had said, Mickey Rooney, Frank Sinatra, Mickey Rooney, yep. Donald O'Connor, and etc. Now, this film is strictly presented by Fred Astaire and Gene Kelly, and Fred Astaire, aged seventy-six, and Gene Kelly, aged sixty-three are working together, and Fred says to Gene, you know, paraphrasing here, obviously, we're paraphrasing. Uh, Fred says to Gene, you know we have to dance, right? And Gene's like, well, I mean, I thought we were just going to present. He's like, no, 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 we can't go out on, we can't do this thing. For the first time since since we've worked together for 30 years, and do this movie and not dance. And so Gene and Fred choreographed their three or four dance scenes that they put together in the, in this film. And I was blown away. My um, middle daughter, when she saw them dancing, she's like, I think it, she, she's, you know, towards the end of the movie, she's like, I think it's nice that they're dancing. And I'm like, yeah. And Fred Astaire is 76 and Gene Kelly is 63. And she just could not believe it. She was like, what? I was like, I know, right? This is amazing. Um, and it wore him out too. Uh, Fred Astaire said that he had a blast, but I mean, it just totally wore him out. You know, not, not that I'm blaming him, you know, 76 years old. It's a little difficult sometimes to go 
dancing all over the place. And you definitely see it. You can see him struggling a little bit, and a lot of the moves they're doing are relatively simple, but it's charming as hell. Absolutely. I mean, that, yeah, you can definitely see that the age has caught up with them, but not to the point that they lost their grace. I Like you said, I think you can tell that they're choosing their moves carefully, and they are executing them gracefully, but not necessarily quickly. That's okay. It's still better than I could do. Uh, <laughs> and, I, and I'm not, and I'm just barely over 40. So it's really cool. Doc Abel, Melvin Douglas, Bob Montgomery, John Barrymore, Hermione Gingle, Lester Williams, Frank Sinatra, Dinah Shore, Francho Tone, Garson, Catherine Hepburn, Spencer Tracy, Roddy McDowell, Merloy, and William Powell. The stage is a world of entertainment. Who could ask for anything more? It's the greatest entertainment since That's Entertainment. MGM's That's Entertainment Part 2. You ain't seen nothing yet. Now, I am curious, so... I, I, for those of you who are following along with us and may not be in the know quite yet, this is a sequel. It came out in 76 um, because of the phenomenal success of That's Entertainment. This movie has been uh, even more well-received by critics, but the film itself actually did not do the box office business that the first one did. Um, I mean, it wasn't a failure, per se, but it definitely was not bigger than the first one. And I'm curious, Tim, do you do you fall in line with the critics on this one or do you fall in line with, you know, audience perception where they enjoyed the movie, but just not as not as many people went to go see it? I fall in line with the audience, mainly because with the approach they took with this film, it's very stream of conscious and they attempt to break away from the musicals and focus a little bit on dramatic performances and comedic performances. But right. it needed more structure to support that. And it, with it being stream of conscious, and it kind of becomes more structured there towards the end when Gene Kelly takes over more so of the narration, the hosting duties, I suppose. But what made the first movie so interesting, and I think really hit home on the nostalgia factor was that basically the first movie was a send up to MGM and the movies that in, in the musicals that MGM produced. And it was also a send off to the back lot of MGM. So there was right. a lot of both nostalgia and not drama, but just kind of like a lot of reflecting and sadness kind of tied in with the first one that made it more, more more dynamic i it was suppose bittersweet yeah absolutely yeah. I, I, no, I would say it was bittersweet i mean for sure and see that's the thing that got me too i i think that for what it was worth and for how it was presented i still enjoyed watching the performances and stuff i would have liked a more grander selection of the comedy and the drama if they're gonna if they're gonna break away from it and um, and that's fine. I mean, because they had already done two out, almost two hours and 20 minutes in the first film dedicated strictly to musicals, you know, so then that's fine. Ease up on the musicals this time and let's look at more of the entertainment 
that was given to us through MGM in their comedies, in their dramas, in their road trip movies, and in their buddy comedies and stuff like that. Um, sure, maybe, maybe a little bit of an homage to the silent era a little bit, because, I mean, for what it's worth, Buster Keaton makes momentary appearances in both films, so why not play that up a little bit? Um, I mean, so I like, I mean, so, so it was okay that those were there. And like you, I would have liked a little bit more structure on that. But I think what got me was as beautiful as it was to see Fred and Gene dance, those intro numbers really didn't do it for me. I, I just, don't feel like they've aged well. I, I think it really kind of sets the tone that this is the mid to late seventies and they're just trying to entertain you to get you to stick around. Um, and I agree with you entirely that the hook of the first one where they're walking through the back lot and it's more than just the two and they're sharing not just their memories, but how those memories worked with the people that they're relating to in the in the in the films clips that they show um but and i also was not as blown away with the film selection overall um we had already seen some of anchors away we had already seen um singing in the rain we had already seen some zigfield folly stuff uh, and and even though they were showing different numbers from those movies, I would have rather had seen other movies or take that stuff out completely and again put in some more comedy, put in some more drama, and go that route. I think I would have liked maybe more background in history as well, kind of like the first one. Yeah, and so, I mean, sure, find something else to anchor it. Like the first one, like you said, was anchored with the backlot. Um, because that was where so much had happened. And now you're seeing these actors and actresses who are so much older now and they're, the back lot's falling apart and everything. Uh, sure. Maybe, maybe broadcast or maybe do your segments from some of those, um, from some of the really cool locations other than Paris. Obviously they had the little Paris section. Um, maybe do something from New York. Do something from some of the sound stages that were used and talk a little bit about that kind of stuff. Which they did. That's where they, you know, like where they were hosting from. I believe they said that was stage 27, which is where they shot like American in Paris and a bunch of like most of the other big musical numbers, which actually stage 27 is still there. No, no, and I get that. But what I'm saying is, is more of that. I mean, I get oh, yeah. that they did the one. Yeah. But I don't know. I just felt that this one is good. It's good. It's just not quite as strong. Um, but I mean, you get a lot more Esther Williams this time. And I thought that was fantastic too, to really kind of see that. I mean, good Lord. I thought those people were going to kill themselves, uh, in the, in the Everglades there. At the at uh, at the end of the movie, mm -hmm. when they do the last number and she flows up in the helicopter, I mean, there were so many people going by those cypress trees, and <laughs> I was like, how many times did they 
map that out before they actually got it filmed right. Oh, man. I was just waiting for poor Esther to be blown out of the water by one of those freaking water cannons. Oh, yeah. And she's, like, slaloming through that stuff? I couldn't even believe it. I was like, And you can what? you can also tell, like, there are a couple cuts where it's, like, clearly she got water blasted by one of those cannons because I saw her going in there and she was closer than where she came out where the camera cut to. Right. So I, it was it's just funny. But as in terms of the comedy, and this is what bothered me, it featured uh, the Marx Brothers and you see one of their classic routines when not only just the Marx Brothers are in this tiny cabin on a boat, I believe, and it's just a tiny, tiny cabin and, and more and more people... Yeah. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, there you go. And more and more people are, are being added to the room. And it's just really funny. And that was all great and everything. But I would have loved to have seen more Laurel and Hardy, more Abbott and Costello, more Jack Benny. I was so surprised they didn't go more into Jack Benny in WC Fields. There are mentions of them. Jack Benny is mentioned, but they don't really show his comedy routine. They show him hosting and they make a I think Gene Kelly makes a comment like, oh, here you see Gene or here you see Jack Benny earlier on. And you can already see him doing his little shy routine that will make him famous, you know, some years later. You doubt you see Jimmy Durante as well. And Jimmy Durante has a lot of great stuff. And uh, you see a little bit of it in this film. I just wanted to see more. I mean, even the Marx Brothers, they have musicals. Laurel and Hardy has have definitely have musical numbers and it just would have been nice if they incorporated all of these comedy bits better than what they did. These comedies were just as hard to put on as these big musicals. They deserve just as much to be there as you know, as as all these uh, tap dancers and musical performers. I agree. And it's actually, it is kind of neat that they, who they chose to kind of focus on and everything. Like, for for instance, um, they, they kind of zeroed in on Maurice Chevalier a few times. And they, and they briefly mention him in the first one, but they really kind of show some extra scenes. And when I'm watching him do the girls, girls, girls number, I, I literally, like, I, I mean, I know I texted you and everything, but... It literally reminded me of the prototype of Lumiere from Beauty and the Beast, you know, 60 years later. And it's, so even though I don't, I agree with you that the selection could have been better, at least the people they chose to focus on and the works they chose to focus on really helped you understand their star power. Oh, yeah. It was more obscure. You know, well, somebody who doesn't watch a lot of musicals would consider the choices to be obscure. Right. Because, I mean, most people nowadays probably have never heard of Gigi. You know, and then when you see two old people singing a song, uh, Maurice Chevalier and uh, uh, and Hermione... Oh, uh, Gingold or whatever from Gigi? Yeah, they're sitting there singing I Remember It Well. It's such a lovely song and i talked last uh, week about how you know a great musical there has to be a lot of uh, nuance and it can be a big film it can be a big musical number it can be a small musical number and this number here from gigi i remember it well solidifies that it's just two old people talking 
or singing to each other about remembering, you know, the past and just the setup of it is is beautiful. And the film also goes more into Fred Astaire and Gene Kelly about, you know, just how they would try to reinvent, not necessarily reinvent themselves, but reinvent the movie musical. For example, in Easter Parade, during the song uh, I'm Stepping Out With My Baby, Fred Astaire does this very interesting slow motion number with his cane. And he's spinning around with that cane, but there's people surrounding him in the back, and they're all moving in regular time. You watch it now, and it's a little bit cheesy, but that was inventive back in the day. It's not just the gimmick of, oh, hey, Fred Astaire's moving in slow motion, but everything else is not. He's moving in slow motion, and you see how precise he is. His foot placement, his hand movements, his where his legs go, and his posture. Everything is, is out there. Everything of Fred Astaire is out there in super slow motion for a good... I don't know, like 30 seconds, a minute. I forget exactly how long it was. It felt like it went on forever. I did like the touch, though, for the opening credits. They brought Saul Bass in. And Saul Bass, for those of you who don't know, he's the one that revolutionized the opening credits to films. He did uh, some of the great Alfred Hitchcock opening credits. He just did a number of great opening credit sequences. But they brought him back to create the opening titles for uh, That's Entertainment Part 2. And what was very interesting is that they were designed to resemble all of the different styles of opening titles used throughout the 30s, 40s, and the 50s. I mean, you really don't have a lot of of his work since he came on mainly in the mid-50s on and really established himself in the 60s and the early 70s. But you got those great opening titles from like Westerns where you see the the prodder with the person's name being dug into a wood plank and it catches on fire and that burns the name of Gene Kelly and Fred Astaire, whoever it was, onto this plank. And it was fun to see that. It had a lot of promise (laughs) with that opening title sequence, I thought. Uh, I I know that now we've... (laughs) I guess I'm going to ruin it now because here we finally get into some good stuff and fun stuff that, uh, that, that's really worth sharing about the movie. But they, they did something in this movie that they did not do in the first one. Um, they actually show minstrel shows and blackface in this one. They also, and it's only for one act, but, um, they still show it and they also highlight Something that's kind of interesting for me as we look at it from a 2019 perspective. Frank Sinatra's performance of Old Man River in Till the Clouds Roll By, which is interesting because they also do Old Man River from... Oh, yeah, from Showboat. Yeah, from Showboat. And so you get to see the... In the first movie, though, they do that one. Is it in the first? Okay, I was gonna say I couldn't remember. Yeah. I thought that okay. So you you see the original in Showboat, but I thought Showboat was in this one because watching both of these, I'm like, well, where's the where's the African American representation? And right around when I was thinking that, they showed the Showboat, and it's like, oh, wh- okay. Well, th- there's more. I mean, <laughs> there there has to be more than one. Yeah, because in this one, I don't know. Let me see if I have it in my notes. Yeah, I'm double checking. I guess it was Showboat was in the first one. Because I wanted to mention Showboat and I thought it was in this one and that's why I didn't mention it last week. Well, Showboat's a great one, just for the record. 
Um, but no, I, I, I guess my point is, you know, now, granted, we are looking at this from a 2019 perspective versus a 1976 perspective, but even in 1976, you know, the bicentennial year of the, of the U.S., do you think it's the best idea to, to highlight Frank Sinatra's performance of Old Man River? Um, and, I I struggle with this one as a song choice because while it is I think a ballad of the enslaved I think it is something that is rightly better performed by African Americans I don't think that it should stop anyone from having that song resonate with them in certain ways. Uh, you know, every, I, I think that, um, for example, um, in, I think the very first time that I ever truly understood that song was in Joe versus the volcano. And you have Ray Charles, I believe it's, it's his rendition of that song. And when he gets to the, whole thing about being, you know, but I get weary and sick of trying. I'm tired of living, but I'm scared of dying. And I mean, you know, just the way that Ray Charles does it, you're just like, oh, you know, you can just feel that wing. And it's always resonated with me. And it's also interesting because one of my favorite folk singers from the 70s, Jim Croce, also does a version of this song that's I think is really good. But I just, I don't know, from a, just from a historical perspective, it almost seems like a little bit of a facepalm, um, to include that, especially when you're including it on the backs of having a minstrel number, minstrel slash blackface number in this particular film. And I was just wondering, I don't know, what are your thoughts on that? Where, where do you land? Well, it would have been worse if they showed the musical number from what's the Bing Crosby Holiday Holiday Inn. Right, Holiday Inn. But I didn't think MGM did that. I thought that was Warner Brothers. Probably, but good thing they stuck with MGM, I guess, because the blackface number in Holiday Inn, it's obviously all all white people and they're celebrating Abraham Lincoln's birthday and yes. they felt blackface performance in for oh, an Abraham with the Lincoln wig. Song. Don't forget she's wearing the uh she she's wearing that dreadlock wig as that's well. Right. Yeah. That's all you know, oh yeah, it's terrible. That would now that would have been worse. I mean, I, I agree with you. I think one would be foolish not to think differently of musical numbers like like that. Because you really can't say that, oh, it was it was done tastefully. Even if the intentions were good as in like, Oh, Hey, we, we like this style of song. We want to do it as a send up type of deal, but completely misinformed and definitely, definitely obvious, especially. Right. And, uh, and believe me, I mean, we've had this discussion, especially when it comes to holiday Inn, because we own holiday Inn, And when we first bought holiday Inn. Um, we watched it and everything. And when it got to that part, I mean, I stopped it right then and there. And that was when we had the discussion of blackface, you know, and what it meant and where it ties into, um, history and everything. And so, uh, so I think that it's, 
I guess you could use, you can use it, um, at least today as a tool to, to teach it because I think it's an important lesson, um, that's easy for a kid to understand, like, wow, I would never do that. That was, that's, that's, that's rude. And that makes fun of somebody. Right. And I think totally. it's a great, yeah, yeah. And I think, and I think using that, it becomes a great tool. So, um, but I do think it's interesting, I, mainly just because I look at it from the aspect of they put it in there because they were proud of it. And at least, at least today we can acknowledge, we can use it to acknowledge that it was real and it existed. So, so I think that's good too, but I don't know. So on the whole though, I think there's still a lot to like about that's entertainment part two, but it is definitely weaker than that's entertainment. So at least at this rate, if for whatever reason you haven't, you're playing along at home, but you haven't actually started yet. I don't know, Tim, would it be fair start with that's entertainment part two and then watch that's entertainment or should they just dive in and just watch them in order regardless? I think they should watch it in order. I think it's important to know that this is, this is more the obscure collection of, of material, but there's still a lot to like. For example, Eleanor Powell was an amazing tap dancer. Oh my God, yeah. You never hear anybody talking about Eleanor Powell. Absolutely. And they show one of her numbers in this film, and it's wonderful. It's breathtaking. I, I, I loved the uh, shout out to operettas. You hear nobody talking about operettas, like the great Caruso, Mario Lanza pictures. But the king and queen of operettas of that time was Jeanette McDonald and Nelson Eddy. Those were two names I grew up hearing from my uh, my grandparents all the time. They both loved Jeanette McDonald and Nelson Eddy. And my grandfather, who was a singer and actor, loved Nelson Eddy. And he loved his voice. And he just loved operettas because operettas had the the power and the emotion and the singing of an, of an opera. But it had the story and the romance and the intrigue of a well-told musical you know that's why i think i kind of look at you know like mario lanza and nilson eddie as men's men when comparing him to you know movie musical men people think are manly now i suppose but with this film you also get to witness the triplets (laughs) the triplets number from uh, the bandwagon with fred astaire fabre and uh, jack buchanan as as babies. Oh, yeah. That absolutely frightening <laughs> musical number. That shows you how weird musical numbers can be. One other thing I wanted to mention was that I was talking about, or we were talking about before, like all the, the different types of musicals. Well, there's a little film that I remember watching for the first time in its full, in its entirety in, uh, in college from 1934, The Merry Widow Waltz from The Merry Widow. And that number, it's not a musical number, and I guess it's a dance number, it's a bunch of people doing the waltz in like a palace. Like, it's absolutely beautiful. And how they frame each shot, the precision of everybody doing the waltz, everybody's on the same footing, everybody's moving at the same speed, and there are these mirrors everywhere. So it looks like you're witnessing a sea of couples dancing the waltz. And it's a wonderful 
experience. And it's just something visually striking and, and exciting to witness. And so if you have a chance to look any of these films up, that is definitely uh, one of the numbers uh, uh, worth checking out. The Merry Widow Waltz from The Merry Widow. Overall, I thoroughly enjoyed That's Entertainment. And Matt, I know you got the Turner Classic Movies DVD four-pack. Yeah, I did. I bought the uh, the Blu-ray three-pack. I don't know if yours came with special features or not, but uh, mine did, and they're very, very interesting. It's mainly a lot of candid interviews and little documentaries of press ju- of MGM press junkets and interviews with Gene Kelly, Fred Astaire, and some of the ladies that were involved in these musicals. I recommend it highly. Pick up the three-pack of Blu-rays. You'll miss out on That's Dancing, but you can rent that one. The special features, these little documentaries and news clips, are just a wonderful treat from the past that yeah. definitely puts everything into perspective. And you do get special features and stuff with the TCM 4-pack uh, as well. I have not watched all the special features, but they, I do have the special features. And you get intros with Robert Osborne. So um, you get a lot of really cool information that away as well. Um, but yeah, so I guess, so, so does that mean we're off? We're, we're, we're about ready to move forward because we have another week to go. And then we, like I said, we take our break and then kind of move to the redheaded stepchild, if you will. That's dancing from 1985. And then we will come back in week four of our series. And then that'll put us with that's entertainment three. So I guess. We're ready for the spiel, are we not, sir? Spiel on. Oh, stewardess, I speak jive. Oh, good. He said that he's in great pain and he wants to know if you can help him. All right. Would you tell him to just relax and I'll be back as soon as I can with some medicine? Just hang loose, blood. She's going to catch up on the rebound on the med side. What it is, big mama? My mama didn't raise no dummies. I duck her rap. Cut me some slack, Jack. Chump don't want to help, Chump don't get the help. Say can't hang, say seven up. Jive ass dude don't got no brains in Alright, well the music you've been listening to as always has been brought to us by our music partners, Cries of Solace. You can check them out at RadioBurbanation.com and Facebook.com, both slash Cries of Solace. As for us, we have, of course, the SLS Cast. You can find us at SLScast.com. You can send us an email to the show at SLScast.com. You can follow us on Twitter at the SLS Cast. You can follow me, this is Matt, on Twitter at Nitwit12345. And of course, come aboard the information superhighway track on Tim on Twitter if that's your heart's desire. Don't forget, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and our favorite on Stitcher Radio, as well as track us down in the old SoundCloud and other podcast directories. If you'd like to support the show, head on over to Patreon.com and check us out over there. And so until next week, this is Matt saying that thanks to Fred Astaire, I get to say this. The hardest job kids face today is learning good manners without seeing. Take care, cinephiles, and we'll talk at you again next week. Madam, perhaps we should be going. Oh, very well, monsieur. Thank you so much. So nice to see you. And I hope very much we will see you again very soon. Au revoir, monsieur. Monsieur! Has it worked?
get it, Jake. It's Chinatown. Thanks again for listening to the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. You can find us over at slscast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at the SLS Cast. You can send us an email to the show at slscast.com. And of course, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>